Julius Caesar, Part Three of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Julius Caesar, Part 3, Paragraphs 34 to 55. Of his subsequent proceedings, I shall give a cursory detail in the order in which they occurred. He took possession of Picenum, Umbria, and Etruria and having obliged Lucius Domitius, who had been tumultuously nominated his successor, and held Corsinium with a garrison, to surrender, and dismissed him, he marched along the coast of the upper sea to Brundisium, to which place the consuls and Pompey were fled with the intention of crossing the sea as soon as possible. After vain attempts by all the obstacles he could oppose to prevent their leaving harbour, he turned his steps towards Rome, where he appealed to the Senate on the present state of public affairs, and then set out for Spain, in which province Pompey had a numerous army, under the command of three lieutenants, Marcus Petrius, Lucius Afranius, and Marcus Varro, declaring amongst his friends before he set forward that he was going against an army without a general, and should return thence against a general without an army. Though his progress was retarded both by the siege of Marseilles, which shut her gates against him, and a very great scarcity of corn, yet in a short time he bore down all before him. Thence he returned to Rome, and crossing the sea to Macedonia, blocked up Pompey during almost four months, within a line of ramparts of prodigious extent, and at last defeated him in the battle of Pharsalia. Pursuing him in his flight to Alexandria, where he was informed of his murder, he presently found himself also engaged, under all the disadvantages of time and place, in a very dangerous war with King Ptolemy, who, he saw, had treacherous designs upon his life. It was winter, and he, within the walls of a well-provided and subtle enemy, was destitute of everything and wholly unprepared for such a conflict. He succeeded, however, in his enterprise, and put the kingdom of Egypt into the hands of Cleopatra and her younger brother, being afraid to make it a province, lest under an aspiring prefect it might become the centre of revolt. From Alexandria he went into Syria, and thence to Pontus, induced by intelligence which he had received respecting Pharnaces. This prince, who was son of the great Mithridates, had seized the opportunity which the distraction of the times offered for making war upon his neighbours, and his insolence and fierceness had grown with his success. Caesar, however, Within five days after entering his country, and four hours after coming in sight of him, overthrew him in one decisive battle. 
upon which he frequently remarked to those about him the good fortune of Pompey, who had obtained his military reputation chiefly by victory over so feeble an enemy. He afterwards defeated Scipio and Juba, who were rallying the remains of the party in Africa, and Pompey's sons in Spain. During the whole course of the civil war, he never once suffered any defeat, except in the case of his lieutenants, of whom Gaius Curio fell in Africa, Gaius Antonius was made prisoner in Illyricum, Publius Dolabella lost a fleet in the same Illyricum, and Cnaeus Domitius Calvinus an army in Pontus. In every encounter with the enemy where he himself commanded, he came off with complete success. Nor was the issue ever doubtful, except on two occasions, once at Dyrrachium, when, being obliged to give ground, and Pompey not pursuing his advantage, he said that Pompey knew not how to conquer. The other instance occurred in his last battle in Spain, when, despairing of the event, he even had thoughts of killing himself. For the victories obtained in the several wars, he triumphed five different times. After the defeat of Scipio, four times in one month, each triumph succeeding the former by an interval of a few days, and once again after the conquest of Pompey's sons. His first and most glorious triumph was for the victories he gained in Gaul, the next for that of Alexandria, the third for the reduction of Pontus, the fourth for his African victory, and the last for that in Spain, and they all differed from each other in their varied pomp and pageantry. On the day of the Gallic triumph, as he was proceeding along the street called Vilebrum, after narrowly escaping a fall from his chariot by the breaking of the axle-tree, he ascended the capital by torchlight, forty elephants carrying torches on his right and left. Amongst the pageantry of the Pontic Triumph, a tablet with this inscription was carried before him, I came, I saw, I conquered, not signifying as other mottoes on the like occasion what was done, so much as the dispatch with which it was done. To every foot-soldier in his veteran legions, besides the two thousand sesterces paid him in the beginning of the civil war, he gave twenty thousand more in the shape of prize-money. He likewise allotted them lands, but not in contiguity, that the former owners might not be entirely dispossessed. To the people of Rome, besides ten modii of corn and as many pounds of oil, he gave three hundred sesterces a man, which he had formerly promised them, and a hundred more to each for the delay in fulfilling his engagement. He likewise remitted a year's rent due to the treasury for such houses in Rome as did not pay above two thousand sesterces a year, and through the rest of Italy for all such as did not exceed in yearly rent five hundred sesterces. To all this he added a public entertainment and a distribution of meat, and after his Spanish victory, 
two public dinners. For, considering the first he had given as too sparing and unsuited to his profuse liberality, he five days afterwards added another which was most plentiful. The spectacles he exhibited to the people were of various kinds, namely a combat of gladiators and stage plays in the several wards of the city and in different languages. Likewise, Circensian games, wrestlers, and the representation of a sea-fight. In the conflict of gladiators presented in the forum, Furius Leptinus, a man of Praetorian family, entered the lists as a combatant, as did also Quintus Calpinus, formerly a senator and a pleader of causes. The Pyrrhic dance was performed by some youths who were sons to persons of the first distinction in Asia and Bithynia. In the plays, Decimus Laberius, who had been a Roman knight, acted in his own piece, and being presented on the spot with five hundred thousand sesterces and a gold ring, he went from the stage through the orchestra and resumed his place in the seats allotted for the equestrian order. In the Circensian games, the circus being enlarged at each end and a canal sunk round it, several of the young nobility drove chariots drawn some by four and others by two horses, and likewise rode races on single horses. The Trojan game was acted by two distinct companies of boys, one differing from the other in age and rank. The hunting of wild beasts was presented for five days successively, and on the last day a battle was fought by five hundred foot, twenty elephants, and thirty horse on each side. To afford room for this engagement, the goals were removed, and in their space two camps were pitched, directly opposite to each other. Wrestlers likewise performed for three days successively in a stadium provided for the purpose in the Campus Martius. A lake having been dug in the little Codita, ships of the Tyrian and Egyptian fleets, containing two, three, and four banks of oars, with a number of men on board, afforded an animated representation of a sea-fight. To these various diversions there flocked such crowds of spectators from all parts, that most of the strangers were obliged to lodge in tents erected in the streets or along the roads near the city. Several in the throng were squeezed to death, amongst whom were two senators. Turning afterwards his attention to the regulation of the commonwealth, he corrected the calendar, which had for some time become extremely confused through the unwarrantable liberty which the pontiffs had taken in the article of intercalation. To such a height had this abuse proceeded, that neither the festivals designed for the harvest fell in summer, nor those for the vintage in autumn. He accommodated the year to the course of the sun, ordaining that in future it should consist of three hundred and sixty-five days without any intercalary month, and that every fourth year an intercalary day should be inserted. 
that the year might thenceforth commence regularly with the calends or first of january he inserted two months between november and december so that the year in which this regulation was made consisted of fifteen months including the month of intercalation which according to the division of time then in use happened that year he filled up the vacancies in the senate by advancing several plebeians to the rank of patricians and also increased the numbers of praetors aediles quaestors and inferior magistrates restoring at the same time such as had been degraded by the censors or convicted of bribery at elections the choice of magistrates he so divided with the people that excepting only the candidates for the consulship they nominated one half of them and he the other the method which he practised in those cases was to recommend such persons as he had pitched upon by bills dispersed through the several tribes to this effect caesar the dictator to such a tribe naming it i recommend to you naming likewise the persons that by the favour of your votes they may attain to the honours for which they sue he likewise admitted to offices the sons of those who had been proscribed the trial of causes he restricted to two orders of judges the equestrian and senatorial excluding the tribunes of the treasury who had before made a third class the revised census of the people he ordered to be taken neither in the usual manner or place but street by street by the principal inhabitants of the several quarters of the city and he reduced the number of those who received corn at the public cost from three hundred and twenty to a hundred and fifty thousand to prevent any tumults on account of the census he ordered that the praetor should every year fill up by lot the vacancies occasioned by death from those who were not enrolled for the receipt of corn eighty thousand citizens having been distributed into foreign colonies he enacted in order to stop the drain on the population that no freeman of the city above twenty and under forty years of age who was not in the military service should absent himself from italy for more than three years at a time that no senator's son should go abroad unless in the retinue of some high officer and as to those whose pursuit was tending flocks and herds that no less than a third of the number of their shepherds freeborn should be youths he likewise made all those who practised physic in rome and all teachers of the liberal arts free of the city in order to fix them in it and induce others to settle there with respect to debts he disappointed the expectation which was generally entertained that they would be totally cancelled and ordered that the debtors should satisfy their creditors according to the valuation of their estates at the rate at which they were purchased before the commencement of the civil war deducting from the debt what had been paid for interest either in money or by bonds by virtue of which provision about a fourth part of the debt was lost 
he dissolved all the guilds, except such as were of ancient foundation. Crimes were punished with greater severity, and the rich, being more easily induced to commit them because they were only liable to banishment without the forfeiture of their property, he stripped murderers, as Cicero observes, of their whole estates, and other offenders of one half. He was extremely assiduous and strict in the administration of justice. He expelled from the Senate such members as were convicted of bribery, and he dissolved the marriage of a man of Praetorian rank, who had married a lady two days after her divorce from a former husband, although there was no suspicion that they had been guilty of any illicit connection. He imposed duties on the importation of foreign goods. The use of litters for travelling, purple robes, and jewels, he permitted only to persons of a certain age and station and on particular days. He enforced a rigid execution of the sumptuary laws, placing officers about the markets to seize upon all meats exposed to sale contrary to the rules and bring them to him, sometimes sending his lictors and soldiers to carry away such victuals as had escaped the notice of the officers, even when they were upon the table. His thoughts were now fully employed from day to day on a variety of great projects for the embellishment and improvement of the city, as well as for guarding and extending the bounds of the empire. In the first place, he meditated the construction of a temple to Mars, which should exceed in grandeur everything of that kind in the world. For this purpose, he intended to fill up the lake on which he had entertained the people with the spectacle of a sea-fight. He also projected a most spacious theatre adjacent to the Tarpeian Mount, and also proposed to reduce the civil law to a reasonable compass, and out of that immense and undigested mass of statutes to extract the best and most necessary parts into a few books. To make as large a collection as possible of works in the Greek and Latin languages for the public use, the province of providing and putting them in proper order being assigned to Marcus Varro. He intended likewise to drain the Pomptine marshes, to cut a channel for the discharge of the waters of the Lake Fusinus, to form a road from the upper sea through the ridge of the Apennine to the Tiber, to make a cut through the Isthmus of Corinth, to reduce the Dacians who had overrun Pontus and Thrace within their proper limits, and then to make war upon the Parthians through the lesser Armenia, but not to risk a general engagement with them until he had made some trial of their prowess in war but in the midst of all his undertakings and projects, he was carried off by death. Before I speak of which, it may not be improper to give an account of his person, dress, and manners, together with what relates to his pursuits, both civil and military. It is said that he was tall, of a fair complexion, round-limbed, rather full-faced, with eyes black and piercing, and that he enjoyed excellent health, 
except towards the close of his life, when he was subject to sudden fainting fits and disturbance in his sleep. He was likewise twice seized with the falling sickness while engaged in active service. He was so nice in the care of his person that he not only kept the hair of his head closely cut and had his face smoothly shaved, but even caused the hair on other parts of the body to be plucked out by the roots, a practice for which some persons rallied him. His baldness gave him much uneasiness, having often found himself upon that account exposed to the jibes of his enemies. He therefore used to bring forward the hair from the crown of his head, and of all the honours conferred upon him by the senate and people, there was none which he either accepted or used with greater pleasure than the right of wearing constantly a laurel crown. It is said that he was particular in his dress, for he used the latest clavus with fringes about the wrists, and always had it girded about him, but rather loosely. This circumstance gave origin to the expression of Scylla, who often advised the nobles to beware of the ill-girt boy. He first inhabited a small house in the Sabara, but after his advancement to the pontificate, he occupied a palace belonging to the state in the Via Sacra. Many writers say that he liked his residence to be elegant and his entertainments sumptuous, and that he entirely took down a villa near the grove of Aricia, which he had built from the foundation and finished at a vast expense, because it did not exactly suit his taste, although he had at that time but slender means and was in debt, and that he carried about in his expeditions tessellated and marble slabs for the floor of his tent. They likewise report that he invaded Britain in hopes of finding pearls, the size of which he would compare together and ascertain the weight by poising them in his hand, that he would purchase at any cost gems, carved works, statues and pictures executed by the eminent masters of antiquity, and that he would give for young and handy slaves a price so extravagant that he forbade its being entered in the diary of his expenses. We are also told that in the provinces he constantly maintained two tables, one for the officers of the army and the gentry of the country, and the other for Romans of the highest rank and provincials of the first distinction. He was so very exact in the management of his domestic affairs, both little and great, that he once threw a baker into prison for serving him with a finer sort of bread than his guests, and put to death a freedman who was a particular favourite for debauching the lady of a Roman knight, although no complaint had been made to him of the affair. The only stain upon his chastity was his having cohabited with Nicomedes, and that indeed stuck to him all the days of his life, and exposed him to much bitter raillery. I will not dwell upon those well-known verses of Calvus Licinius, Whate'er Bithynia and her lord possessed, her lord who Caesar in his lust caressed. 
I pass over the speeches of Dolabella and Curio the father, in which the former calls him the queen's rival and the inner side of the royal couch, and the latter the brothel of Nicomedes and the Bithynian stew. I would likewise say nothing of the edicts of Bibulus, in which he proclaimed his colleague under the name of the Queen of Bithynia, adding that he had formerly been in love with a king, but now coveted a kingdom. At which time, as Marcus Brutus relates, one Octavius, a man of a crazy brain, and therefore the more free in his raillery, after he had in a crowded assembly saluted Pompey by the title of king, addressed Caesar by that of queen. Gaius Memmius likewise upbraided him with serving the king at table among the rest of his catamites, in the presence of a large company in which were some merchants from Rome, the names of whom he mentions. But Cicero was not content with writing in some of his letters that he was conducted by the royal attendants into the king's bedchamber, lay upon a bed of gold with a covering of purple, and that the youthful bloom of this scion of Venus had been tainted in Bithynia. But upon Caesar's pleading the cause of Nysa, the daughter of Nicomedes, before the senate, and recounting the king's kindnesses to him, replied, Pray tell us no more of that, for it is well known what he gave you, and you gave him. To conclude, his soldiers in the Gallic triumph, amongst other verses, such as they jocularly sung on those occasions following the general's chariot, recited these, which since that time have become extremely common. The Gauls to Caesar yield, Caesar to Nicomede. Lo, Caesar triumphs for his glorious deed, but Caesar's conqueror gains no victor's meed. It is admitted by all that he was much addicted to women, as well as very expensive in his intrigues with them, and that he debauched many ladies of the highest quality, among whom were Posthumia, the wife of Servius Sulpicius, Lollia, the wife of Aulus Gabinius, Tertulla, the wife of Marcus Crassus, and Mucia, the wife of Cnaeus Pompey. For it is certain that the Curios, both father and son, and many others, made it a reproach to Pompey that to gratify his ambition he married the daughter of a man upon whose account he had divorced his wife after having had three children by her, and whom he used, with a deep sigh, to call Aegisthus. But the mistress he most loved was Servilia, the mother of Marcus Brutus, for whom he purchased in his first consulship after the commencement of their intrigue a pearl which cost him six millions of sesterces, and in the civil war, besides other presents, assigned to her for a trifling consideration some valuable farms when they were exposed to public auction. Many persons expressing their surprise at the lowness of the price, Cicero wittily remarked, 
to let you know the real value of the purchase, between ourselves, Tertia was deducted. For Sevilia was supposed to have prostituted her daughter Tertia to Caesar. That he had intrigues likewise with married women in the provinces appears from this distich, which was as much repeated in the Gallic triumph as the former. Watch well your wives, ye sits, we bring a blade, a bald-pate master of the wenching trade. Thy gold was spent on many a Gallic whore, exhausted now thou comest to borrow more. In the number of his mistresses were also some queens, such as Eunoe, a moor, the wife of Bogudes, to whom and her husband he made, as Naso reports, many large presents. But his greatest favourite was Cleopatra, with whom he often revelled all night until the dawn of day, and would have gone with her through Egypt in dalliance as far as Ethiopia in her luxurious yacht, had not the army refused to follow him. He afterwards invited her to Rome, whence he sent her back loaded with honours and presents, and gave her permission to call by his name a son, who, according to the testimony of some Greek historians, resembled Caesar both in person and gait. Mark Antony declared in the Senate that Caesar had acknowledged the child as his own, and that Gaius Matius, Gaius Oppius, and the rest of Caesar's friends knew it to be true. On which occasion Oppius, as if it had been an imputation which he was called upon to refute, published a book to show that the child which Cleopatra fathered upon Caesar was not his. Helvius Sinner, tribune of the people, admitted to several persons the fact that he had a bill ready drawn which Caesar had ordered him to get enacted in his absence, allowing him, with the hope of leaving issue, to take any wife he chose, and as many of them as he pleased, and to leave no room for doubt of his infamous character for unnatural lewdness and adultery, Curio the father says in one of his speeches, He was every woman's man, and every man's woman. It is acknowledged even by his enemies that in regard to wine he was abstemious. A remark is ascribed to Marcus Cato that Caesar was the only sober man amongst all those who were engaged in the design to subvert the government. In the matter of diet, Caius Oppius informs us that he was so indifferent that when a person in whose house he was entertained had served him with stale instead of fresh oil, and the rest of the company would not touch it, he alone ate very heartily of it, that he might not seem to tax the master of the house with rusticity or want of attention. But his abstinence did not extend to pecuniary advantages, either in his military commands or civil offices, for we have the testimony of some writers that he took money from the proconsul who was his predecessor in Spain, and from the Roman allies in that quarter, for the discharge of his debts. 
and plundered at the point of the sword some towns of the Lusitanians, notwithstanding they attempted no resistance, and opened their gates to him upon his arrival before them. In Gaul he rifled the chapels and temples of the gods, which were filled with rich offerings, and demolished cities oftener for the sake of their spoil than for any ill they had done. By this means gold became so plentiful with him that he exchanged it through Italy and the provinces of the empire for three thousand sesterces the pound. In his first consulship he purloined from the capital three thousand pounds weight of gold, and substituted for it the same quantity of gilt brass. He bartered likewise to foreign nations and princes for gold the titles of allies and kings, and squeezed out of Ptolemy alone near six thousand talents in the name of himself and Pompey. He afterwards supported the expense of the civil wars and of his triumphs and public spectacles by the most flagrant rapine and sacrilege. In eloquence and warlike achievements, he equalled at least, if he did not surpass, the greatest of men. After his prosecution of Dolabella, he was indisputably reckoned one of the most distinguished advocates. Cicero, in recounting to Brutus the famous orators, declares that he does not see that Caesar was inferior to any one of them, and says that he had an elegant, splendid, noble, and magnificent vein of eloquence, and in a letter to Cornelius Nepos, he writes of him in the following terms. What, of all the orators who, during the whole course of their lives, have done nothing else, which can you prefer to him? Which of them is more pointed or terse in his periods, or employs more polished and elegant language? In his youth he seems to have chosen Strabo Caesar for his model, from whose oration in behalf of the Sardinians he has transcribed some passages literally into his divination. In his delivery he is said to have had a shrill voice, and his action was animated, but not ungraceful. He has left behind him some speeches, among which are ranked a few that are not genuine, such as that on behalf of Quintus Metellus. These Augustus supposes, with reason, to be rather the production of blundering shorthand writers who were not able to keep pace with him in the delivery, than publications of his own. For I find in some copies that the title is not For Metellus, but What He Wrote to Metellus, whereas the speech is delivered in the name of Caesar, vindicating Metellus and himself from the aspersions cast upon them by their common defamers. The speech addressed to his soldiers in Spain, Augustus considers likewise as spurious. We meet with two under this title, one made as is pretended in the first battle, and the other in the last, at which time Asinius Pollio says he had not leisure to address the soldiers on account of the suddenness of the enemy's attack. 
End of Julius Caesar, Part 3 Recording by Graham Redman